Welcome to the Trinity Grace Church Tribeca podcast. At Trinity Grace Church, our mission is to help New Yorkers grow in love by practicing the way of Jesus for the good of our city. If you're interested in Trinity Grace Church Tribeca, check out our website at tgctribeca.com where you can learn more about us and learn about ways that you can help support our church and this podcast. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook to see and hear what's going on in our community. Thank you for joining us today and welcome grace and peace to you. Some of the sad uh, Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married a woman and died childless. The second, 31, and then died. A third married her. And in the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then at resurrection, whose life will she be? Whose wife will she be? My goodness. Since the seven were married to her. Jesus replied, the people of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage. And they can no longer die, for they are like angels. They are God's children, since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the, of the living. For him all are alive. The Gospel of our Lord. You can be seated. I don't know, was it just me? But after you teased me, there was like a hex on your reading. I can... Uh, um, just... Just simple observation, but um, I'd like to, uh, to invite us uh, into a moment of, of quiet and, and presence. Uh, so much of, of vital spirituality is being present, present to ourselves, how we're thinking and feeling, really, um, present to each other, um, to our neighbor, our church community, um, and most of all, presence to God. Um, so however you do that or know how to do that, we invite you to bring your full self. You could have lots of doubt this morning, lots of faith, wherever you, whatever you bring into the room. Just bring your full self to this moment. Let's open our hearts to God and ask God to speak.
God, we thank you for these, these moments that we share as a community. We don't take them lightly. We could be doing lots of stuff right now, but we chose to be here uh, because of this in some way matters to us. And so uh, we bring our full selves as best as we know how to this moment. Give us courage uh, to face what we see and what we hear. Uh, give us um, compassion on ourselves and on our neighbors and on our city and our world. And fill us with your love, Holy Spirit. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and that same Spirit. Amen. So there are in life cross pressures, currents, forces in our lives that often leave us asking the simple question, what is going on? How do I make sense of what's happening right now? And where, if possible, could I discern or discover how God is at work in the midst of that. This story, which we've just read, is a story that reflects some serious cross-pressures, uh, serious forces at work in people's lives that are creating conflict, that are creating ambiguity, and that were quite dangerous, depending on where you landed. Um, this was a time in a story where there's a Roman Empire, and the empire was was sweeping in its scale. Of course, nobody was untouched by it. And uh, people were wrestling with, what do we do with the pressure of this empire? There was financial pressure from the taxation. Uh, there was cultural pressure in terms of identity. How do we preserve our identity when there's so much at work in our life, in our daily life, that seems to threaten it or to take it away? So there's lots of fear. And um, there were different ways to respond to these pressures. Um, there, was a, there was one reaction or one response that said, okay, Roman Empire is in charge now. Uh, we should resist. And it was called the Maccabean Revolt. And it was successful for a little while. It was a bloody, bloody revolt. Uh, many died. Many lost their lives. Um, think of the most noble war that you can conceive of, that you have a sense of, though war is atrocious, you might have a sense of, like, this was a virtuous war. This was a good war. I think a lot of us think of World War II instinctively that way. Um, this is how they felt about their resistance, their bloody revolt. And um, the people in Jesus' time who were sort of the, uh, I don't know, the, the recipients of that stream were the Pharisees. The Pharisees, fathers and fathers and fathers, they were the revolters. They were the ones who said, no more. And they paid the ultimate price. But eventually, Rome came back in charge, and they were left to go, okay, now what? We, we gave it our all. We gave our lives, even. Now what do we do? And so the Pharisees sort of said, okay, I think maybe the reason God's allowing this to happen is because we're not uh, godly enough. We're not uh, obedient enough to Torah. And so all this emphasis was started to be putting, uh, being put on sort of godliness and behavior and purity and uh, fidelity to Torah. That was the Pharisees. But you also have the Sadducees, and that's who we encounter in this text. And the Sadducees were, uh, I don't know, on the other side of that bloody battle, if there were people who felt like, oh, no, I'm under the thumb of this now, there were some who sort of benefited from it. And that's who the Sadducees would have represented. The Sadducees uh, ran the temple, and somebody had to run the temple. I mean, the temple's sitting there. It's a huge enterprise. It's a huge machine. And the Romans didn't want to run it. So they looked to the Sadducees, and they said, you're in charge now. And the Sadducees sort of lived a sort of fat cat life. Um, 
not a lot of resistance because they were brokers of the Roman Empire. And so they had a lot of power, they had a, a significant amount of wealth and ease from the status quo, but man, they were despised by a lot of people, as you would imagine. Now Jesus steps into this, and everyone's asking the question, what do we do with this mess? Who's right? Who's got the right take? How do we respond to this? You've heard the old adage, um, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Have you heard this? Yes. Has anybody not heard that? Okay. So, oh, wow, lots. I don't know my audience. Um, Let me just say, I grew up in a context where that was said a lot. Uh, I was like, the Bible says it, I believe it, that settles it. Um, And I think our story here shows us that it's never been that simple. It's just never been that simple. Um, I saw something this week that was really interesting. It was kind of like um, poking fun at that phrase. It said, the Bible said it. I interpreted it as best I could in light of all the filters of my upbringing and culture, which I try to control for, but I can never do perfectly. Um, And so the Bible says it. I interpreted it. And that doesn't exactly settle it. uh, But it does give me enough of a platform to base my values and decisions on. I kind of like that. So this isn't new. Um, This tension around, okay, we got our sacred text, we got our story, we got our tradition, now we have our world, and there's all these pressures and like um, difficult things to discern and make decisions about. What do we do? How do we make connections? And Jesus enters into, or maybe better, is sucked into um, the fault lines of competing interpretations. There's Different stuff at stake for each party here in this disagreement. And I think, by the way, as an aside, a word to the wise is that the wise always can pick up on uh, the energy that is underneath a conflict. Like, many times the energy in a conflict is attached to the idea or attached to the issue, but there's usually something else that's animating it. And I think... It's wise for us uh, always to step back in our conflicts, the things that we get passionate about, the things that we get frustrated about or upset about or outraged about, and to step back and have the emotional intelligence, right? To have the social intelligence to say, why am I so riled up right now? Is it really this idea? Is it really this issue? Or maybe there's something else at stake here that's going unnamed or unrecognized. And what does that look like for Jesus here? And here's the context. So we, don't, we didn't read any of the context of this story and this exchange between Jesus and the Sadducees. It kind of sounds like on the surface a boring debate that's irrelevant to us. Any of you wondering, like, if you have multiple marriages, uh, which one you're married to in eternity? Is that your burning question? Your burning existential sort of, like, angst? Probably not. But here we are, immersed into that debate, and, uh, and it's, it has energy. It has heat. There's like real stuff at stake here, and I think there's rich connections to our lives now. Jesus had just had a triumphal entry into the city. You remember he rides in on the donkey, and uh, people are waving palm branches, and they're calling him the king, and um, his, he's shed tears over the blindness of the city. He sat and overlooked it and cried out, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if you, only you knew what made for peace. He wept for the violence and the oppression that was happening in that city. And then you have these dramatic encounters in the temple. Um, 
Not least because Jesus had just driven out the money changers, the people who were brokering like the sacrificial animals. He had just driven them out in a dramatic way. And everyone was like, who is this guy? What is this guy about? What is this guy doing? What does this mean? And so he has this, these dramatic encounters in the temple. Three questions are put to Jesus in hostile fashion. Uh, one question is put to the religious authorities. And then the chapter concludes with this sort of denunciation. You got these scribes. They're like experts in the Torah. And, uh, and Jesus is ridiculing them for the way that uh, they are pretentious and the way that they essentially foreclose on houses of defenseless widows. And he's basically saying, shame on you for that. And then at the very end of the chapter, a widow is praised for giving everything she had to the temple. And now we have this exchange. So Jesus is, is right in the middle of cross pressures. And it's not really a conversation, it's an entrapment. They're trying to trap him into saying the wrong thing or getting caught um, with his pants down, so to speak. Embarrassed. This was very much about honor and shame, not about winning an argument. And so what energy did the Sadducees bring to this story? I mean, they were in self-preservation mode. Yeah. Someone comes into the temple, disgraces the temple in their eyes, undermines their calling and their authority and their role. They already know they're unpopular with the people, and here this guy is showing them up. And so they're animated by a sort of self-preservation instinct. Now, when we think about our moment and the cross-pressures of our moment, our lives here in New York in this sort of late modern era, what are those cross-pressures like right now? I think there's like a really beautiful analog between then and now. Um, in Jesus' time, you know, the, the, the narrative sets this up for us. You have the Pharisees who are like, hey, there's a resurrection after, the, after death. And then you had the Sadducees who are like, there's no resurrection after death. Uh, if something as important as resurrection were true, God would have told Moses, his most trusted prophet, and we read the Torah and there's nothing about resurrection. So clearly, there's no such thing as resurrection. When we die, that's it. So this debate existed. And it wasn't just about ideas. Justice was at stake here. It's always convenient for the emperors and the pharaohs of the world to not believe in some divine accountability or some sense of justice. You remember Martin Luther King Jr. always appealed to that through line of an arc of justice. You know, the universe is pointed toward justice, and therefore it gives fuel in the face of adversity. Whatever resistance you meet to justice, there's this sense of there's something bigger than me, there's something sweeping, there's a direction to history, and that's a comforting idea, and it's a fueling idea. The Pharisees held on to that. Remember their fathers and fathers' fathers? They gave their lives in resistance, in revolt to the Roman Empire. And they're carrying on this tradition. And right now they're under the thumb of it and they don't see a way out of it or around it. They're hoping that through godliness and faithfulness to Torah, they can somehow God will deliver them. But they hold on to resurrection because resurrection means vindication. It means God will eventually make things right, even if we don't see it in our lifetimes. And the Sadducees relativized justice. They relativized any sort of... Uh, consequence or accountability for the corruption that existed, and they had very social, emotional reasons to do so. And when I think of today, I think of that cross-pressure between 
imminence on the one hand, which is the sense of a closed universe, you know, we're, we're, everything is just really pressed in on us, uh, the, uh, we're locked out of heaven, so to speak. And so because the, the, the seal has been set and this is all we have, um, there's a pressure that comes with that. And so we have the sense of imminence on the one hand in the modern era, but we also have the sense of transcendence, the sense of maybe there's something beyond, maybe there's something deeper or underneath, maybe there is like a, a, a force, a creative personal force at work in all of this. And what Charles Taylor says in his book, A Secular Age, is that we're each haunted by these things. Uh, those of us who lean toward transcendence, we're haunted by eminence. I mean, we're haunted by doubt. And those of us who lean toward eminence, we're haunted by transcendence and enchantment. And we wonder, is it possible? Is this all there is? And these cross pressures, they get energy in different directions. And in Charles Taylor's words, he's like, we live right now with a malaise, the sense of... Um, there's kind of a, a gloom. Um, we're disenchanted and we're haunted, and because of our modern architecture, you know, technology and all the rest, we have this sense of isolation as well. We have never been more independent and self-reliant, and we've never been more alone and untethered. And so what he says is uh, right now we're in like this Nova effect. It's a beautiful image that's a metaphor for all the options in a secular age, there's so many options. And we know this very much in New York, where you're just confronted with people who think different, believe different, live different, and yet we share this space of our common city. And he basically says it's easy to get paralyzed by the options. It's easy to have a sense of all these realities that are contested, and uh, it can be exhausting, especially here in New York. Um, I love this quote, I'm gonna read it. it, it it's, it's a little long. I'll try to read it in an entertaining way. I don't know how do you read a quote in an entertaining way, but um, try to track with this. This is what Charles Taylor says about this temptation to multiplicity. He says, this kind of multiplicity of faiths, and faiths, by the way, including like uh, agnosticism or pure atheism, this kind of multiplicity of faiths has little effect as long as it's neutralized by the sense that being like them is not really an option for me. As long as the alternative is strange and other, perhaps despised, but perhaps just too different, too weird, too incomprehensible, so that becoming that isn't really conceivable for me, so long with their difference not undermine my embedding in my own faith. This changes when through increased contact, through interchange, even perhaps intermarriage, the other becomes more and more like me in everything, uh, in everything else but faith. Some act same activities, same professions, same opinions, same tastes, and then the issues posed by difference become more insistent to us. Why my way and not hers? There's no other difference left to make the shift preposterous or unimaginable, end quote. So he really puts his finger, I think, on that feeling, that mood of being immersed in difference and being immersed in plurality and not being far removed from it where it's like, oh, that, I know that difference is out there, but it's just uh, never really an option for me. Now we live in an increasingly pluralized, globalized world where these pressures are on us. And we're left asking, what do we do with this? What do we do with this moment? What do we do with this story? How do we lean into the future? 
Now, what's really at stake here? I'm going to propose this morning, there's a lot of little lines I could run, but I'm going to do two this morning. The first line I want to run out of this is that what's at stake is hope beyond death and hope beyond failure, one. And two, that there is a sense of justice beyond our experience. So hope beyond death, hope beyond failure, one. Two, a sense of justice that's beyond our experience. So the first, I want to reflect on this. Hope beyond death and failure. Now, Jesus is in this debate, and it's Leverett Law, which, any big fans of Leverett Law out there? No? Anyone know what Leverett Law is? So it's this really interesting uh, sort of moment in history where, or maybe not so interesting moment in history, where uh, someone is, uh, is, it dies, and the widow is left unprotected, because in that patriarchal um, era, moment, um, a woman's protection came through marriage, and the protections around family, and the legacy and protections of children. Children were very uh, were economic stabilizers. And so um, if a woman were to uh, be a widow, then Leverett Law said, the brother of your spouse, if he was unmarried, would marry you and take you into his sort of like power and wealth and security and status. And then any child they had would be considered the older brother, the dead brother's child. It's kind of weird, but it's true. Um, so, you know, the, the Sadducees feel like they have the ace in the hole. They're like, hey, we got the card up the sleeve. It's the great argument, which is, let's take that Leverett Law to its logical conclusion. All right? Let's say the one brother dies, then the next one marries. And then that brother dies. Oops. The next one marries. But the other brother dies and then marries, and then another brother dies and marries. This is a big family. And eventually, you're left with this, like, absurdity in the afterlife. Like, if, if there is an afterlife, if there is a resurrection, uh, <laughs> what's the situation like for marriage? You can imagine the confusion. You can, and it depends. Like, who was the favorite? I don't know. And so we have this sense of, uh, of, of absurdity here that the, the Sadducees are pressing, and Jesus kind of sees through all of that and kind of cuts to the heart of the issue. And for Jesus, the heart of the issue is about life. What is life? What is death? How do those animate us in this world? What is justice? And is there accountability in this world? And Jesus kind of like, almost like without, you know, pause, jumps right in with a pithy response. And so this idea, this, this point about hope beyond death and failure touches us in this YOLO era. This idea of you only live once. I even said it to my wife last night when I was wanting to make a purchase that she thought was not good. And the only thing I had was, it was not Jesus' pithy, like, wonderful response. It was like, a YOLO? Uh. But that makes us, YOLO sort of makes us more urgent about this life. And it can give us this feeling of wanting to take in all that is good and, and possible in this life because it's so scarce and it's so precious. And it can, it, you know, I sort of have in my mind that jovial sort of like suck the marrow out of life person when I think of YOLO. But I got to thinking about the effect that the YOLO vision can have on our lives when there's pain or when there's fear or hurt. And I think 
it can be very sharp. It can be very cold in the face of pain and injustice. A purely imminent notion of culture, uh, Charles Taylor says, is an inner contradiction. There's this sense of more and more freedom, which we all experience more than our <laughs> previous generations. There's a sense of increasing rationality, and, but increasing absurdity. And that's only, uh, that is only the Christian with his hope beyond failure and hope beyond death that can give to the world its history, uh, its meaning and direction. So what does all that mean? It basically is when, when the stakes are so high in this life, uh, we can feel like we got to squeeze out of it all that we can. But then when things are not going our way, it means it, it's like the, the stakes are even higher. And I, I wrote this earlier this week. I was thinking of this. I was like, um, well, if I can find it, I'm going to quote myself. That's kind of weird. I can't find it. Here's what I'm going to say then. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to paraphrase myself. <laughs> you think, what's that? I, I will not mind. I've given myself full permission. Um, so we might not know exactly what this looks like. Our tradition and our stories point us to a sense that God is the God of the living, as Jesus says here, and that while we die, we remain alive to God, and that resurrection is a sense of wholeness and a sense of reconnection. It's a sense of healing that we await, and that there's this life after death but that isn't just an extension of this life's arrangements. That's Jesus' point, is that like, the afterlife isn't just this life writ forever, um, that there's a qualitative difference. And so all the things uh, that seem normal to us, the arrangements like marriage and, and so forth, are non-factors because so many of these arrangements are rooted in fear, managing death and the prospect of death, managing scarcity in this life and in, in our relationships. And Jesus says we have to have a different imagination for what's possible with human flourishing and with a good life. Now, I want you to think of the edge, the edge that leads to that sort of like cranky angst when things aren't going our way. When we think this is the only life we have and there's oppression or there's injustice or things aren't going our way, that sort of like cranky angst that we feel, I want you to imagine the edge being taken off of that and how we might approach these problems without that edge. That is the power of hope beyond death. It's the power of hope beyond failure. And this is where I'm going to paraphrase myself. If death is a dead end, then that also means failure is a dead end. And if death and failure are dead ends, how could we think of failure in any less terms than the cosmic? Everything seems dialed up. Everything seems so intense. And I do think that's playing into how many of us are thinking about social justice in this era. The stakes feel so high. And we feel like we've just got to get this right, and we've got to get it right now, and there's such urgency. And listen, I believe in, in social justice, and I also believe in the urgency of social justice. But when we're trapped in imminence, it's almost like, this medium and method issue, or medium and, and message issue, it's the medium undermines the message. The medium undermines the goal. The medium undermines the, the value. Have you ever had a, an argument with uh, a loved one? And uh, you realize like what you said was actually good and true and right, but how you said it allowed it not to be heard, 
Heard? That's a word. I do words for a living. So have you ever been in that situation? That is the situation that we find ourselves in now, I think, with how we're going about it. And it's not, I'm not talking about like tone policing. What I'm talking about is a way of being that can see things with the complexity that exists and can have a, a posture of mercy and a sense of I'm not in total control of justice and I'm not in total control of executing justice. But there's a sense of openness, but there's a sense of winsome pursuit toward these causes. And I think we need more of that than we need, and, and I don't think it's anyone's fault. I think people are just like um, products, in many cases, of the environment, of the atmosphere, of the air that we're breathing right now, and it has its momentum. I talked about this a little bit last week. But this sense that there is hope beyond death and there's hope beyond failure gives us a different posture. It allows us to say the stakes are indeed high, but they're so high that I have a humility toward them. And rather than thinking I can conquer them or take control of them, I have a sense of I'm going to make my contribution, but I don't think I can manage this by myself. And I think that's a, a, a really interesting, it's, it's a helpful distinction. I think it's a helpful posture. But as we think about how Jesus approaches these things, Jesus confronts evil. Jesus speaks the truth to power. Jesus, you know, had the, the expose in the temple where he just, you know, drove out the money changers. But Jesus was very careful not to just look through dualities and say, you're good, you're bad. You're pure, you're impure. Jesus always muddied the waters because he knew things were more complicated than that. And anytime uh, outrage and judgment and persecution had a momentum, he was always like, let's slow that roll. Let's think about it. Let's turn the diamond and look at it this way. And that is, I think, the witness and the posture of the church. The witness and the, and the way of Jesus to say, okay, there's a lot of heat here. There's a lot of momentum here. Let's, let's turn it a little bit and let's see it from a different perspective. Or let's use this as an opportunity to reflect on our own lives and our own heart and our own pain. Again, back to that, intellect, that sort of like intelligence. What's animating this right now for me? And this is the power of transcendence. Transcendence takes the edge off. It's, it's a way for us to um, hope beyond these uh, apparent ultimate realities. Now, I speak of afterlife as one who has not died. Very, very open acknowledgement, okay? But what we have are these beautiful stories and ways of thinking that have been handed on in our tradition that we now have in our hands as we face these tensions in these moments. And we're left going, what will we do with these? What will we do with these teachings and these stories and this wisdom? And I think there's so much possibility. Because if death is not ultimate and failure is not ultimate, then we can lean into these moments of failure and threat, which is the power of empire, threat of death, to take away, to cut you off, to, to, to basically annihilate you if you step out of line or if you resist. And when you have the fear of that relativized, now you have a new confidence. You have a new power. You have a new courage. And it's a courage that has a soft edge. It's not a hard, sharp, anxious approach to the world, but it's this compassion, this mercy, this ease, and yet an urgency and an insistence. I think Dr. King embodied this so well. And he would say, we have this through line of, 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 a, of a history headed toward justice. We believe that. We believe death is not the end. We believe that failure is not the end. And so we don't have to be violent in our approach. 
We can give up what seems like lots of power. We can act what seems very full of folly in the eyes of the world that says you just got to take what you need and what you can get. And, and instead they said, no, we actually believe in this through line so we can live with this other kind of moxie. And you saw it. I mean, there's almost a spiritual swagger, and I don't mean that in a light terms. There's, there's this, like, gravity to a, an outlook that says, you don't own me. You can't threaten me. I'm not threatened by you or anything that you offer. Instead, I look you square in the eye, and I say, this is the truth, and this is where history is headed. And there's a softness there. I think we need more of that in this world. The second thing is a sense of justice beyond our experience. Um, as I said before, convenient for emperors and pharaohs of the world um, to have everything in this life, and then you just die. Um, and all who benefit from those corrupt structures and those policies, they're sort of uh, preloaded to welcome the ambiguity. Like, eh, it's, a little, it's a little complex, right? It's a little gray. We're not really sure when it comes to justice or judgment or divine accountability. But I'll tell you this. Those who are under the thumb of oppression or injustice or a nexus of power have always cried out for justice. And they've always had this sense that maybe there is justice beyond my life. And it gave them hope. And it's interesting if we ridicule our ancestors to look back and say, oh, they were so naive. Um, in fact, they were just like push, push arounds because they believed in this justice beyond life or beyond death and therefore they gave in to the powers. But I want you to consider Moses at the burning bush. Jesus brings up Moses in the bush. And I think what we have at Moses and the bush is mystical action. Uh, we have contemplative justice. Uh, Moses is in the desert. He has experienced corruption. He's known it as um, uh, someone who was a part of it, an accomplice. And then he had this moment of solidarity with the people who were being oppressed by the empire. And then he left. And so he's in the desert, and he's like ruminating, and he's reflecting on all of these absurdities and these tensions. And here he is at a bush. And you know he's reflecting. He's in solitude. He's in stillness. He's in quiet. And it's here that he has an encounter with God. And he has a vision of a bush that burns but is not consumed. And in that experience, he has this sense of revelation that the God we're dealing with is a God who is alive, who death is not a threat for. And, and this is what Jesus says. I mean, he had it pulled right, ready to go out of his pocket. Well, uh, Moses was at the bush, and God said to him, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, God's not the God of the dead, but of the living. Now, I'm sure you would not be like, super convinced by that argument, but that was a trump card in the rhetorical wars of the temple at the time, the way he used the Torah for that. And what do we see in Moses? Moses then has this mystical encounter with God. He has a vision of life beyond death, that there's, death does not have the final word. Empire doesn't have the final word. All the things we're afraid of in this life don't have the final word. And he's able to just put the next foot forward and say, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to do something about this. See, I think a lot of us worry that if we believe in justice after life, we just locate justice elsewhere, we won't have urgency now. And we certainly have seen a lot of that in Christian circles. People say, ah, the whole world's burning. It's going to hell in a handbasket. Uh, God will make it right eventually, so let's, you know, live it up. It's its own weird version of YOLO. 
But when we have this Moses mentality, this contemplative activism, now we're talking about this soft, beautiful, compassionate, yet urgent and persistent confrontation of the powers. That's what Jesus embodied. That's what Moses queued up and teed up for the people of Israel. And he'll go to Pharaoh and he'll say, let my people go. And he'll meet threat after threat after threat. And he stands emboldened in the face of the threat. Now for you, how does this connect with life? I think when you think of uh, what are your fears right now? What are you afraid of? You know, it might be connected to your work. It might be connected to your finances. It might be connected to a relationship that just feels like it's faltering. But whatever fear you carry with it, you have a choice. You have an outlook. You can say, I'm going to let the fear of this reverse engineer to a place of aggression and violence and taking what's mine and making sure I get what I can in this short, limited, scarce life. Or you can say, I am afraid, but I do believe that my fear and what, what threatens me is not ultimate. And therefore, I can hold this with an open hand and approach it with a different angle. And there, I can learn what forgiveness means. I can learn what mercy means. I can learn what compassion means. And I can also learn what maybe justice truly means. Justice that restores, not justice that tears down in order to get mine. And this is the beauty of the gospel. The gospel says God is love. And God looks at a corrupt, unjust world, and God doesn't quench it. God doesn't uh, snuff it out. Instead, God enters into the pain. God identifies with it. In the person of Jesus, that's our story. Jesus takes on the pain of human experience and the tension of human experience and shows us what love looks like. And what does Jesus do? We're coming to this table, and this table says... Jesus died, but that wasn't the end of Jesus. Jesus was resurrected. And when we come to this table, we say the same thing, that we will die, but that will not be the end of us. We will fail, but that will not be the end of us. Right? Th these are not dead ends. These are through lines to a, a, a telos in history that guides us, that inspires us, and that keeps us marching toward justice only with the posture of mercy. And so I wonder what that looks like for you as you face your fears, as you think about what you do when there is corruption or oppression in your world and in your life. What's your posture? And how can you take your cues from Jesus and what we see Jesus doing here in the stream of Moses? So let's just take a moment, 30 seconds maybe, of quiet, and let's reflect on what God may be saying to us through this story, through this exchange, as foreign culturally as it is. Let's think about our moment. Let's consider where are the fingerprints of God in my life right now? Addressing my fear. Addressing my pain. So that I can become a force for love in this world and hope and justice. And not a bringer of gloom and darkness and fear. Would you stand with me?